welcome to the Christchurch Winston-Salem podcast. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. I want to thank, thank uh, Chris Burnett for being our guest musical leader this morning. Appreciate you, brother. Thank you, and thanks to Emily and to uh, Shane and to Michael for helping out this morning with music while our our musician, Jim Reed, our music leader, is on sabbatical, so we, pr- we appreciate that. Uh, and folks have really stepped up and helped out, so we're very thankful for that. Uh, I'm thankful for a lot of things. Uh, I'm thankful for air conditioning. Uh, let me tell you what, uh, I don't know how I could live here without it. Thanks be to God for air conditioning. Um, I'm, I'm really thankful for God's Word, of course. I'm a pastor, but this past week, I, I think I shocked somebody uh, we were riding in the car, and I told him that I didn't like this parable of Jesus very much. And he was like, how can you be a pastor even say that? Well, what I, what I told him was I didn't like it, not because of the parable of its, of its own, because of the parable itself, but because of the way it is typically taught, the way that it is typically preached. See, the problem with the text, as it is frequently preached, is that it is reduced to moralism. And do you know what I mean by moralism? It's when we take the gospel and we strip it of all its power to transform us and we turn it into a kind of law, a kind of legal list of do's and don'ts. That's moralism. So the usual way that I heard this parable read when I was growing up is that we ought to be more like that good Samaritan. And by the way, the word good never appears in the, ta- in the, uh, in the, in the parable of the good Samaritan. We need to be more like that good Samaritan and just help those people in need around us. You know, it's kind of like, you know, y'all just ought to stop and help people who are broke down on the road. Amen. Let's go eat fried chicken. You know, that's how I've heard it growing up. And, and that's good. I'm glad that people do stop and help folks on the road, but that's not gospel. There's so much more going on in this text. There's some, there's much more going on in the plain reading of the text, but then there's an, an added bonus feature of the text when we read it as many people read scripture in, in the first century in Jesus's day, typologically. And we'll talk about that. So to begin with, Jesus is questioned by an expert in the Jewish law, an expert in the Torah, a lawyer, in order to test him. He's being tested by this guy, and we don't necessarily have to think that this was a hostile questioning. He probably, this lawyer, was probably determining if Jesus is a true or a false teacher. He had taken it upon himself to be the doctrine police. You know, and if you're doctrine police this morning here in plain clothes, uh, I hope that we'll pass the test. But he's being the doctrine police, making sure that Jesus isn't a false teacher. And the test is the most essential question the lawyer can think of. How do I inherit eternal life? How, what does it mean to come into God's kingdom? How am I to be saved? And then Jesus flips the question. He, qu- he questions the questioner, and he says, you're the expert in the law. What's your interpretation? And the lawyer gives the answer, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. Do this and you will live. 
Now, when Jesus says, you have answered correctly, the word there for correctly in the Greek is orthos. And it's the same root that we get. It's the root from which we get the word orthodox. So Jesus is telling the lawyer that he has orthodox doctrine. Great. But that's not where this story stops. The lawyer asks another question. This is what it says. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, And who is my neighbor? He sought to justify himself. The lawyer is trying. This is critical. The lawyer is trying to limit the claim of God's word over his life. And you know what, friends? We all do the same thing. From time to time, we want to shape the word of God to justify our prejudices and our behaviors instead of God's word shaping us. And so the lawyer says, well, who is my neighbor? In other words, who do I have to love and who do I, who, who don't I have to love? Who do I have to love and who don't I have to love? So, you know, I need to get the neighbor question nailed down. And Jesus answers by telling this parable. Now, I've been on this road that goes, descends 2,500 feet from Jerusalem down to the plain around Jericho. It's 17 miles long, and it probably is in about the same state of repair today as it was when Jesus told that story. Lisa and I were in a bus. Now, we said we were on pilgrimage, but it was a tour. I like pilgrimage, pilgrimage sounds holier, but I think it was a lot like a tour. And, and so we were on the pilgrimage bus and, uh, and we were going down the road to, uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. And I'm telling you what, uh, my prayer life was enhanced by that ride because that bus driver, I mean, there's a cliff right over there. And I know that one of those wheels had to be off the road and going over the cliff. It was a, it was a scary ride, but that road twists through desolate and rugged badlands that were perfect locations for ambushes. It was a notoriously dangerous road. And so a man traveling to Jericho down from Jerusalem is beaten. He's robbed. And the scripture says literally he's left half dead which, of course, makes me think of the Princess Bride. Not completely dead, just mostly dead. Now, the first of the two guys who pass by are Jewish clergy, but they're not bad guys. They were good guys. In fact, they were both keeping the letter of the law by not approaching a dead body. You see, if a, if a Jew touched a dead body, he was ritually unclean, and these men were going to serve in the temple. So if they touched an unclean body, a dead body, they would be defiled and not able to serve in their duties in the temple in Jerusalem. Also, if the man wasn't dead, but he was a Gentile and they touched him, they would still be ritually unclean and unable to serve in the temple. So they just weren't taking any chances. Or maybe they thought it was a trap set by robbers, you know, like, we'll get this, these guys to stop and we'll set on them. This guy's just a decoy. Or maybe they were just in a hurry. But the point is that Jesus isn't bashing the Jewish religious caste. He just wants us to know that the people who passed by the beaten man were good Torah-observing Jews. These were good guys, people, people like us. Then Jesus tells that another man came down the road. 
And his hearers were probably expecting, you know, like stories always have threes in them, you know, three bears. Are, are there like, how many billy goats gruff are there? There are three. That's right. So that's exactly right. I can, you know, it just, it's, it's universal. So the third guy coming down the road and people are anticipating, they've, done, they've got this nailed. Here comes the pious Jewish layman. You know, and by the way, Pharisees were Jewish laymen. So here comes the good Pharisee. And we just know he's going to be the good neighbor. But that is not what happens. Their expectations are not met because Jesus said, and a third man came down the road and he was a Samaritan. And Samaritans were hated, hated by the Jews in the first century. Jesus is being flagrantly, this morning in the first service, I could not say flagrantly, I kept saying fragrantly. <laughs> I don't know. I think I've been thinking about essential oils a lot. I'm not sure. But Jesus is being flagrantly subversive in this parable. You see, it's easy for us to gloss over the animosity between Jews and Samaritans in the first century. And it all actually got started 700 years prior to that period. In 721 B.C., the Assyrian Empire came into the northern kingdom of Israel, which was called Samaria. The area is called Samaria. And those ten tribes there were conquered by the Assyrians, and they were all, all the highfalutin folks, all of the bigwigs, all of the, you know, uh, the upper crust and the middle class and, you know, the learned people and the shopkeepers and everybody. All those people were uprooted and taken into captivity away in the Assyrian Empire, never to be heard from or seen again. And the only people who were left in the land were the nobodies of Jewish society. So the, the lower class of Jewish society. And then the Assyrians relocated a bunch of foreigners into Samaria, into that northern part of Israel. And those people, those foreigners, those Gentiles, started to intermarry with those Samar those people who were left, those Jews that were left in Samaria. So now they're intermingled with the Gentiles, and they began to, to modify and to change the Orthodox Jewish faith as it was taught down in Jerusalem and in Judea. So they were, in the minds of the hearers of this parable, listen, they were half-breed heretics. There was a long and bitter history of hatred between these two peoples. No Jew would even let a Samaritan touch him. In fact, the lawyer at the end of this parable, did you notice that Jesus says, now, who was the neighbor? And he didn't say, hey, it was that Samaritan. He said, it was the one who showed mercy on him. He couldn't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. That's how much hostility there was. And yet, this is the man who is moved with gut-wrenching compassion and stops to help. Now, what could be, I think we need, to, in order for us to understand this parable, and by the way, this is a rhetorical question. Please don't shout out your answer like happened in the first, <laughs> in the first service. All right? <laughs> Who, who would be the analogous people for us and help to help us understand the character of who the neighbor is? You know, maybe for us it would be, it would be, the parable would be, and a radical Muslim, a wasabiist, no, it's, wasabi is a, is a spicy <laughs> sauce. 
fragrant. Yes, Wahhabist. Yes, thank you. English is actually my first lesson uh, language, um, <laughs> but not today. Not today. I have been in West Virginia, so <laughs> I hope they're listening. Uh, so oh, I'm going to be in so much trouble. But perhaps a Wahhabist Muslim is the one who stops and offers aid to the stricken person. Who is your preferred? This is where you don't answer. Okay. Who is your preferred despised group? Who is the group that on social media you call a moron? Those morons. You know, we need to think along these lines because we all now have our personal groups of despised Samaritans. We live in perhaps, this in my lifetime, the culture I live in, the country I live in, has never been this divided in my whole life. And I, I remember the 60s. You know, I remember those days. That was a pretty divided time. It, it was not like today. Some historians say that our divisions are reminiscent of the deep animosity in our country right before the outbreak of the American Civil War. And it is an ugly irony that one of the catalysts for the breakdown of the social fabric is social media. It's all that technology so that people can call each other deplorable morons. See, that's the unexpected twist in this narrative. The person who is actually fulfilling the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself in this story is a part of a despised group. Those people, that other tribe that I don't have any truck with, that unclean outsider, the heretic, the renegade. So what's the point? Well, first of all, love for God is more than merely right doctrine. Now, do not misunderstand I love right doctrine. I love me some good doctrine. I love the Anglican formularies. I love those 39 articles of religion. I even am very fond of the Westminster Confession of Faith. I like, you know, I don't tell everybody that, okay? And uh, I like the uh, Elizabethan homilies that if you didn't have any, if you had questions, those cleared everything right up for you. Love it. I just want to pet my doctrine. I wish, you know, if it was up to me, we'd have named this church the Church of the Immaculate Doctrine. But love for God is more than merely right doctrine. It is action. The lawyer had orthodox doctrine. And that's important uh, to us because we tend to think that this lawyer, like this lawyer, that salvation is a lot about what I think in my head, right beliefs, or maybe having the right sentiments and feelings. But there is no Christian understanding of a love of God and a love of neighbor that does not have the fruit of loving actions. A life transformed by Christ will have the fruit of loving acts. James, in fact, says it like this in James chapter 2, verse 19. You believe there's one God? Good! In other words, you believe there's one God. You've got good orthodox doctrine. Good! And then he says, even the demons believe that. Even demons can have good doctrine. 
And John says this in 1 John, he says, this is how we know what love is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. The other thing we see here is this, is that God's love, not only is God's love an action word, God's love doesn't have boundaries. This is the disturbing thing in this parable. See, God seems to have gotten loose in the world and is showing up in actions, in the actions of Samaritans. That's the gospel. God's grace and love have been poured out through Jesus Christ, and that grace and love is most manifest among those who don't deserve it. In fact, that's the only way you know it's grace. It's because you don't deserve it. Samaritans don't deserve it. For us, that means that God will not let us narrow the field of love. God's kingdom, love, and mercy come to us in surprising ways. And I'm becoming more and more aware of people that don't share my pristine theology, but inexplicably are just much better people than I am. How can you not be right and be a better person than me? God's grace seems to have gotten so promiscuous that it is modifying the lives and actions of people with bad doctrine or even no doctrine at all. I wish he wouldn't do that. But he seems just to just be flagrant in his love. So the lawyer's question is basically, who do I not have to love? And Jesus says this, hey, here's who you don't have to love. You don't have to love anyone who is outside the love of God and of God's grace. All those people who are outside of the love of God, all those people who God's grace is not poured out on, you don't have to love any of those people. Oh, wait a second, there aren't any of those people. This means we don't get to indulge our desire to have our special hated groups to vent on. You moron. Jesus had something to say about that, by the way, in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, all of that is the plain reading of the text. But wait, there's more. It's just like Ron Popeil. Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, Origen, Ambrose, Augustine all saw something else going on in this passage. And here's what it is. And I want you to, and especially, I want you to listen to this especially. Uh, maybe this morning, if you have never heard, never responded to the good news about Jesus. Or maybe this morning, if you feel like you're outside the love of God, that you have done things and been a person that maybe, you know, you just don't feel like you deserve God's love. Hey, that's the gospel. None of us deserve God's love. Here's what those old dead Christian dudes saw in this passage. We are the one who fell among the thieves. The enemy of our souls, the thief, comes only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We are left beaten, stripped of our dignity, half dead. It says half dead, and they read it like this. We're alive in our bodies, but we're dead to God. And we are helpless in the wilderness. 
The priest and the Levite are like the law of Moses. They have no power to raise us to life. Now, while this is what Paul says in Romans 7, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. While the law is good, before Christ enters our life, the law of Moses stands over us and can only condemn us as defiled and unclean. But then Jesus comes, Jesus who is like the Samaritan. Now, how could I even get there? Well, it says in Isaiah chapter 53, a prophecy of the Messiah, that he was despised and despised, you know, like Samaritans. Despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In fact, when the Jewish leadership wanted to cast the greatest possible scorn on Jesus, they said in John 8, John chapter 8, the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? This despised and rejected Jesus comes to us and has compassion on us. Jesus is the one who sees us dead and helpless. He binds up our wounds and he heals us with the oil and wine. Get it, get this. This is what they saw in this passage. I think it's a beautiful thing. Jesus heals us with the oil and wine of His Word and His sacraments. It's beautiful. And then Jesus carries us to the end, which is the church. And He puts us under the care of the Holy Spirit, the innkeeper. And His grace is so abundant that if there is anything else we need, He provides it for us and He says this, I will come back. That's the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that's good news. We're the one half dead in the ditch. And thank God a Samaritan came and saved us. One commentator said the parable can be summarized as follows. To enter the kingdom, one must get down into the ditch and be served by one's mortal enemy. Grace comes to those who cannot resist, who have no other alternative than to accept it. To enter the parables world, to get into the ditch, is to be so low that grace is the only alternative. The point may be so simple as this. Only he who needs grace can receive grace. Well, let me tell you what. There's a simpler point than that. We all need grace. May God open our eyes to the fact, to the reality that we aren't all okay, that we are helpless and beaten and half dead. Uh, I pray for you brothers and sisters who feel like life's pretty good and you've got it all going right this morning. Uh, I thank God for that. You're in a good place, but please don't be deceived. You need grace as much as the lowest person. Jesus, our good Samaritan Lord, comes and wants to heal you and bring you abundant life. Won't you let him do that? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thanks for listening. To learn more about Christchurch, visit us at ChristchurchWS.org. Subscribe to our podcast at our website, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts.